Hello and welcome to the F1 Strategy Report, powered by Apex Race Manager, the mobile race management simulator. My name's Michael Laminato, and this is the 2019 Formula One season preview. Eight days of pre-season testing are in the can, but despite all the timing data, it's difficult to know what to expect from the competitive order. So while the team set up in Melbourne and prepare for the season opening Australian Grand Prix, I caught up with applied mathematician Dr. Andrew Phillips from F1 Metrics to try and divine what we can expect from the 2019 Formula One season. Andrew, how are you doing? Hey, Michael. Thanks for having me on. It's, uh, I mean, it's always so much hype coming out of the preseason. And that's purely because there are so few concrete answers. We can't know anything for absolute certain. But there is a lot of data that we can crunch through to kind of build a bit of a picture and get a little bit excited. Uh, and as, as much as we sort of said this last season, I feel like it's still very much true, perhaps even more true, if you can use such a phrase this year, uh, that the field at least the midfield, and to a, to a certain extent, the midfield to the front runners looks actually quite close if we look at the numbers. Yeah, I agree. It looks like there are a lot of teams, maybe seven teams within a second this year. Which is sort of a... I mean, we, we're used to seeing that kind of performance difference in the midfield. And we're going to go through this in a little bit more detail, of course, obviously. But the gap... I mean, we know we've had technical regulation changes this year and, and how much that is the cause of this, I suppose, remains to be seen throughout the course of the season. But the gap to that very close midfield, by the looks of it, uh, does it seem like it's a little bit close to the front? Can we be a bit more optimistic that maybe we'll see a bit more of a mix-up between what, I guess, last year we were calling kind of Class A and Class B of Formula 1? To me, the data are definitely looking that way, as though that Formula 1 to Formula 1.5 bridge uh, has closed a little bit, at least. I mean, last year was pretty extreme in terms of the gap between the third and the fourth best team. It's quite unusual to see such a gulf there. Yeah, it really is. And I think that, I mean, there were so many uh, situations last year where that really came home. You know, felt like almost every second race we were having a Mercedes or a Ferrari or a Red Bull racing car starting from the back and then being in the top six yep. within three or four laps, something ridiculous. But I mean, you've, you've been seeing the preseason take place and, of course, the season themselves over the last couple of years. It, is it safe to say, do you think, that last year, that huge difference, and granted, we've had a big difference for a little while now, but the, the really significant one we saw last year was maybe just a one-off? Oh, I hope so. Um, but I, I, think a lo- I think a lot hangs on Red Bull. I, I think Red Bull, for the moment, probably haven't shown their best in testing, um, and, and partly because they've got this new engine partner with Honda. And I imagine it will take some time for them to get up and running. Of course, we also had Gasly crash on his race stint during testing. So we may not have seen the best that Red Bull has to offer in testing. We can hope. Anyway, for the sake of the championship. Yeah, I think so. For the sake of... Uh, I think what will really be the test of this season will be, can any other teams score a podium? Can a team that is not driven by Sergio Perez score a podium? <laughs> not that I've got anything against Sergio Perez. It's always good when he's on the podium. Yep. But uh, you know, I think we've had only one, one per season, one non-top three team on the podium per season in the last couple of years, which is a pretty dire pretty dire state of affairs for Formula 1, at least for the the variety. We've been lucky enough to have some competition in the midfield and in the top two, uh, top couple of teams. We'll talk about Red Bull Racing in a second, though, because like you said, that looks like that could be could be the key. Uh, let's talk about the, the battle for the championship, first yeah. of all. Ferrari versus Mercedes. Mercedes obviously dominated the sport for the last five years, though Ferrari's been creeping closer in the last couple. And there's been a lot of positive sounds coming from the Ferrari camp and some some more cautious noises coming from Mercedes. What does the data bear out about the relationship between these two teams? Well, I think, you know, reading a lot of analyses online, 
the, the consensus across the board has been Ferrari are looking the favourites right now. Um, and I would concur with that, looking at the preseason testing data. Data. Um, I'm not sure I would go as far as some commentators have in terms of suggesting you know it's a half second or more advantage to Ferrari. The margins I was seeing from equivalent stints were smaller than that, more like two or three tenths. Um, but you know that's the kind of difference where you're getting into the uncertainty of setup, of driver differences, etc. Um, but certainly for me, looking at preseason testing, Ferrari across the board looked just a little bit stronger than Mercedes. It's interesting because it's been a strength over the last year and maybe even two years, if we want to be a little bit more generous with Ferrari 2017, that over the course of the season, it has been on long run performance that Ferrari has tended to have a bit of an edge. You know, Mercedes has done very well in qualifying, certainly with Lewis Hamilton, because, well, maybe by combination of the fact their engine maybe has a slightly higher qualifying mode and the mm-hmm. car is very much set up to be a one lap machine. But the fact that, that we're hanging the, the fact that Ferrari might have an advantage on long run pace, is that, in your opinion, looking at the numbers, down to uh, that it, that's increased a little bit over the last 12 months? Or do you think maybe that's a reason to be cautious in the fact that, well, actually, Ferrari has always had a bit of an advantage and maybe we're just seeing that again this year and we shouldn't get too far ahead of ourselves because despite having that advantage over the last couple of years, Ferrari's still not failed to lose the championship. Well, that's a fair point. So, you know, I haven't done a qualifying-based analysis and so perhaps we have to temper this by the fact maybe Mercedes will generally start Mm -hmm. in front of them and then we'll come down to the question of how much has the new aero package actually helped uh, in terms Mm. of overtaking. Um, And then, of course, as you say, you know, can Ferrari deliver on it? There's a good (laughs) argument that Ferrari had had the quicker package overall for a lot of last year, but operationally they just Mm -hmm. weren't there. and so, you know, having the faster car on long runs is not enough in and of itself. But I, I will say, comparing the preseason data from last year to this year, analyzing it in, in pretty much exactly the same way, I do think Ferrari have made up some ground. Which well, does sort of give credence to the idea that, in fact, this might be a bit of a step forward from Ferrari. But that is also a worthwhile point to note that for all the information we do get from preseason, we don't exactly always get good qualifying um, simulations purely because we're on one circuit and inevitably the fastest laps end up on the softest tyre mm-hmm. uh, this year called the C5 tyre, which is not a Barcelona tyre. So you don't really get a, a fair representation of what a qualifying simulation would be like. And then, of course, the very fair point that you still need to operate the car well if you want to win races. And that certainly has been a bit of a weak point yep. of Ferraris in recent times, it's fair to say. What can we read, though, G- given we've got that caveat on sort of qualifying performance? Yes. What did you feel, and this maybe even more be down to if someone were to just view the video, the side-by-side video that's doing the rounds between Ferrari and Mercedes, the fact that Mercedes was able to lap within uh, three thousandths of a second, I think it was, ultimately by the end of the day of Ferrari, is that maybe, for the first time, can we say Mercedes is actually the team that might be showboating a little bit, and that's not the representative line? That, that would be unusual for Mercedes. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Mercedes came into this test in a, a kind of unusual situation um, in that they didn't seem to be running their intended Melbourne spec through the first test. Mm. They only brought that to the second test. So, you know, in a way, we have to be a little careful with that comparison. You know, it may be days five through eight for Mercedes are really more comparable to days one through four for Ferrari. Um, and if so, we, you know, we could see Mercedes beginning to make significant ground in the early season. 
So I, I wouldn't count. I definitely wouldn't count them out. I think yeah, that would I'm absolutely saying. be the wisest way to go about it. Don't count out Mercedes because you don't know what's going to happen between preseason testing uh, and the Australian Grand Prix. I'm basically I, I'm not going to fall off my chair if it's a Hamilton pole yeah. in Melbourne. <laughs> exactly right, and no one should. We should all be wise enough to know that that shouldn't. That could still be the case. Right. Uh, the battle for the the championship should. Looking at the numbers, at least be interesting. Even if it ends up being all Ferrari's way, hey, that's a certainly a change of pace compared to the last couple of years. It's third and potentially fourth and fifth where I think things are really interesting because we've got as much as we can't necessarily know anything concrete from preseason testing. This is where the real unknowns and the fascinating ones start. You mentioned at the top Red Bull Racing and how they kind of sit here, and we do caveat with this the fact that there was a lot of runtime lost because Pierre Gasly had two fairly big crashes, one in each week, but. Red Bull Racing, despite all the positive noises they've been making about how great their partnership with Honda is, doesn't necessarily uh, be borne out in in the numbers and the results they got from their preseason. Agreed. I, I found their results slightly subdued in preseason testing. Um, so you know, we'll have to see. At least Honda ran reliably. Mm-hmm. That's something we can say. And so it does look to me as though Honda's made some sort of step forward. But r- right now, you know, how close have Honda and Renault gotten to the Ferrari and Mercedes? benchmarks I, I don't know we're not going to know that really until first qualifying and it's worth saying as well we talk about reliability i mean they looked fairly reliable this time last year and they had definitely taken a step forward on their 2017 performance but there was a lot going on behind the scenes in preseason as well it doesn't necessarily you don't you don't get the full picture in terms of reliability and the fact that there was no um, full-blown qualifying simulation suggests that, well, maybe the engine wasn't being pushed to its absolute limits, which means yeah, the reliability hasn't been tested so much either. So That's true, but, but I would say I think the Red Bull was a sterner test for Honda. That's true. You know, if you compare reliability of running in a Red Bull Newey machine to a Toro Rosso, you know, the Toro Rosso, I think, was a, a more conservative design, you know, taking into account the potential reliability issues of Honda. Whereas Red Bull are always going to go for super aggressive packaging. They're always going to push the power units to the limit. So the fact that you know it largely survived through testing, I think, is a very good sign. It is. It is a good sign. And it will be fascinating to see how uh, that project pans out, not least because competing, well, hey, potentially for third, because we don't know exactly where Red Bull is because of the data that came back from preseason testing, but at least probably just behind them in fourth, uh, is the potential for there to be the Renault Works team, of course, mm. running a Renault engine, the engines that Red Bull Racing abandoned last year. Yeah. Now that fight's a little bit personal because it's about, uh, you know, should you have broken up with Renault? Oh, we'll find out maybe over the course of the next couple of seasons. But um, Wouldn't it be something if Ricardo outscored Verstappen this year? Oh, let me tell you, I don't think anyone would be getting out of uh, the Australian Grand Prix in one piece because it will be pandemonium yeah. if Daniel Ricardo can beat a Red Bull Racing car. Uh, doubly so if you can get onto the podium, wouldn't that be an incredible result but the battle here just at the very front of the midfield and and possibly for third we don't know Renault and Haas Mm -hmm. I mean these were the teams that were competing for fourth last season and Haas should have been a lot closer had they not made so many mistakes early on in the season in particular both driver and team who can forget the pit stop bungles at the Australian Grand Prix last year what can we glean from the information we've got from these two teams because there's a lot of conflicting information depending on who you ask. You know, some uh, analyses say Renault is very, very fast. Haas was a little bit unreliable, but in some runs also looks quite quick. I mean, what did you see from these two teams? Haas are very difficult to read. Um, you know, l- looking at last season, I think there's a, a pretty good argument that they had clearly the fourth best car across the season. 
So looking at it that way, it shouldn't be a huge surprise if they've delivered something close to the fourth best car again. The, the issue with the Haas car is they just looked very different on different compounds of tyre. Uh, so, you know, on, on one of the compounds, they were sometimes running times that could potentially look very competitive with the top three. But then when we look at them on the C3 tyre, so the, the softer tyre, they seem to be trailing Renault, they seem to be trailing McLaren, and they were down closer to Alfa Romeo. So the, the, for me, there's quite a bit of uncertainty there with respect to Haas. You know, which, which is the more representative performance um, and, and how is that going to bear out across the race? It's worth adding that both of those tyres uh, are appearing at the Australian Grand Prix and presumably will be the more common ones given they're more or less in the middle of the range. Mm. Worth adding as well that, as we sort of said earlier, you know, we can say that on the softer tyre, perhaps Haas was struggling, but the softer the tyre, the less likely they are to be used at the Spanish Grand Prix at that circuit. So... You know, then there's that extra variability sure. of, well, is the car not performing on the tyre? Is the tyre just not really performing around that particular circuit? So there's reason to be optimistic. And then there's, of course, reason maybe not to be so pleased. Because I feel like I, also this time last year, Haas looked like one of those teams where the, the time suggested, how oh, maybe they could be in the top three. So mm-hmm. maybe that's, again, down to one of those operational things. We know that the Haas uh, operational aspects were not always perfect last season. But... I mean, if we touch now on on Renault, which is the team that I suppose most people are hoping that, or assuming will be fourth, given they're a manufacturer team and inevitably they've been rising up the grid and hope to be competing for a title in the next couple of years. I mean, their teams at, at times look very fast, but also seem to maybe be reserving their pace a little bit it was hard to to know whether they were really pushing is that what the 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 time suggested to you i found renault were being a little sneaky in (laughs) testing um in in that almost always between their long runs they would spend a few minutes in the garage but they didn't really string long runs together into a true race simulation Uh, and so what that means is we don't really know the fuel load we we don't know that they were consistently burning down fuel across consecutive long runs so they may have been consistently feeling heavy or they may have been consistently feeling light. And so that's where a lot of the uncertainty with Renault comes from, that you know they may indeed be the fourth best car. At times we had um, some outlets suggesting they were even the second best car. Um, I, I found that a little difficult to believe from fuel correcting the times, so that they could be second best or quite that high, just because they had quite a few long runs that even under sort of the most generous interpretation for fuel didn't look like something Mercedes or Ferrari or Red Bull could have produced. Um, so although they did have some quite quick times, I'm, I'm currently seeing them as more in the mix for that fourth place fight. Which would be, I mean, yeah, where more or less uh, predictions would place them. Mm-hmm. It will be interesting to see where that balances out. And of course, uh, a manufacturer team like Renault, you would assume would, would have the resources to continue developing throughout the year. So you never know where they actually do end up if that potential is in the car. Uh, another team worth keeping an eye on, if not just to see if they can recover from what was a fairly embarrassing season last year, uh, was McLaren. Now, a lot of sort of uh, estimates before preseason testing would have suggested that they would probably still be towards the back of the midfield, given you can't turn around a dramatic situation like that McLaren landing themselves in uh, in a single off-season. But there was reason for optimism looking at the times for McLaren. Yeah, I saw a lot of very dire predictions for McLaren. Um, and I read all these before I even started looking at the data. So I sort of came in with the assumption that it was going to look pretty bad for them. And it's not really what I found in the end. Um, I found especially their race simulations look pretty decent. I, I don't see why they couldn't be 
you know, at least competitively fighting in the midfield. I, I don't see that they're going to be in a situation like last year where, you know, they're, they're kind of fending off the backmarkers. Um, I, I think they could indeed be in the fight with Renault and with Haas. And, you know, if we think of it in terms of resources, it really ought to be McLaren and Renault fighting for fourth. I mean, team budget doesn't determine everything, but it does strongly correlate with how teams tend to perform. Haas are kind of the outlier there in terms of um, the amount of money they put into the sport. But then again, they might be running effectively a 2018 Ferrari just painted black. We don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when it's worth uh, bringing up at that point as well, uh, as we try and dissect roughly how the midfield pans out, that you know we have some some perhaps confusing or misleading results or, or inconclusive results uh, from Racing Point, Toro Ross and Alfa Romeo. Alfa Romeo sort of looked good um, early on in the test and sort of looked less convincing later on. Toro Rosso, though, uh, in the sense that if we talk about Haas potentially running essentially a 2018 Ferrari, is an interesting one because they're running, you know, the back end in as much as possible a kind of 2018 Red Bull racing car. So presumably, you know, if you're Toro Rosso and looking at your times and thinking, oh, they're a bit so-so, should be expecting quite a lot to come from that package by the end of the year, given the cars are on a similar pace to what they were last season. Yeah, at, at times, the Toro Rosso looked very impressive, especially on some of its single lap times. Um, it just didn't seem to really be keeping up on the longer runs. But as you say, there's plenty of scope for potential improvement there. Um, and I'm sure there's, you know, there, there shouldn't be, but there's probably some exchange of ideas between the, <laughs> the, the parent and the daughter team. In some way, in some legal yeah. way. We'll say it that way. <laughs> exactly. I think a similar thing sort of applies to Racing Point because they, had a, they were running a compromise program and are bringing an enormous upgrade uh, to this weekend's Grand Prix. So they are almost essentially running a B-spec car, which... Almost makes running in preseason testing a little bit irrelevant, but for reliability, I suppose. Uh, but finally, this one of the stories of the preseason and what could be one of the stories of this season uh, is the plight currently facing Williams. Uh, they turned up two and a half days late to preseason testing, which has never happened in the 40-odd year history of that team. They've since, well, probably parted ways with Paddy Lowe. He's taken leave on for no an indefinite amount of leave with no particular reason we're all sort of counting the days until that presumably turns into an amicable parting of ways which is probably what's going to end up happening but you know it looked grim and, and granted they didn't have as much running as they expected and the car they ended up running was not even really the finished version of the car and it's also been changed since the end of preseason testing to conform with the regulations which is not what you want but what how grim did it look looking at the numbers just how bad was it well, let's put it this way. The gap between the ninth quickest team and Williams was not so different from <laughs> the gap between Mercedes and the ninth best team, uh, just based on preseason testing alone. So, you know, if they're running at that kind of pace, we'd expect them to be about 4% off pole. Um, now, you know, we can hope they'll bring upgrades and so forth, but I just, you know, I feel sad for Williams. Um, I, I think as most longtime fans... There's a certain respect for Williams and the way they try to go about their racing. It, you know, you, maybe at some point it just doesn't work anymore what they're attempting to do. Um, but if so, that you know, it's kind of a sad thing for the sport in terms of what it means to be more of a privateer team. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, then the perfect contrast, as we've kind of touched on already, is Haas, right? I mean, Haas has been in the sport for three years and is already competing at the very top of the midfield. And we're talking about maybe even breaking into third. 
uh, because they've gone in the polar opposite mm-hmm. direction to Williams. Williams, which tries to make absolutely everything but the engine, and Haas tries to buy absolutely everything by the stuff you're legally not allowed to yes. buy. Uh, and I suppose the, the divergent results are showing which way the regular, which model the regulations favour, if we can call it that. Not the regulations favour either particular way, because of course you can say, well, Mercedes also builds everything, but. For an independent team, for a team that's not backed by a, a wealthy manufacturer or, or an energy drinks brand, yeah. <laughs> as Haas also is now, we may as well say, uh, it's difficult. It's difficult times to be an independent team like Williams. So, yeah, I think you're absolutely right when you say most F1 fans will be sad to see them there because, I mean, in many respects, they are the F1 team or the model of an F1 team. They've been around for long enough to have that credibility and they, they do it all themselves. Yep, completely agreed. Uh, but right now, looking very dire for them. You know, I, I hope they can come back from this, but it, it's going to be difficult. Yeah, we'll have to see. You know, how much the car is upgraded in Melbourne. There was talk before Paddy Lowe left that there'd be only a modest upgrade here. You know, we and then we'd all look forward to Spain. I suppose that's traditionally a race where a lot of upgrades are brought. But not good news for Williams, considering the difference to the rest of the pace. But very interesting midfield spread, and what will hopefully be a fairly interesting championship battle now before we wrap this up uh other than just analyzing the numbers on your website you also have uh, an intra-team battle analysis uh it is sort of it's not just your it's not just your opinion it's calculated in a way and i mean maybe i give you that disclaimer because some of the results are i think would surprise some people um do you want to just give us a quick run through on how it's calculated and then i want to pull out one or two intra-team battles that i think are going to be interesting regardless of what the numbers say but the numbers paint a particularly interesting picture yeah so these driver rankings are produced out of a mathematical model that i've used each season to to rank the drivers historically and in the present Um, and what the model can do is it can try to make forward predictions of which driver is likely to perform better than their teammate um you know, these, of course, are not going to always be perfectly accurate, but I, I think they give some useful insights. Um, and, and, you know, it's interesting to contrast it with our own subjective opinions. I, I certainly don't always agree with the model. And, and then it becomes an interesting question of, well, you know, why? Why does the model think that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, that is a, a perfect point because the model has its reasoning. And, you know, it's sort of based in the numbers and... Well, you can say that in some respects it's not wrong, but I, I mean, the, the one that's going to catch everyone's eye, not just because it was first on the list, is Vettel versus Leclerc. Now, this is a highly, highly anticipated teammate battle, uh, and Leclerc is tipped by this to come out on top essentially two to one, 64% to 36%. Some people would say that that's probably accurate because given the way that Sebastian Vettel, for want of a better word, kind of choked a bit in the championship battle you know and you got cool as a cucumber leclerc who had no trouble at all last year well maybe maybe that's not completely off i mean you can't rule leclerc out he's looked absolutely astonishing all through the junior ranks and into formula one um i remember you know watching his car control just back in formula three and it Mm. was just something else um so you know i I don't think Vettel's going to have an easy time this year I mean, on the other hand, he's, you know, Leclerc is going up against one of the, the great drivers of the era. Um, and it's, you know, Vettel has had some poor patches of form, notably last year. 
It's rare, though, for him to have two bad seasons on the trot. So, I mean, this will be the test in many respects, I suppose, and uh, a little bit of a, a territorial exercise, you know. It's his Ferrari, I suppose, is the way you might want to look at it. And doesn't want a repeat of the Vettel versus Ricardo incident. That is another actually interesting calculation, the Ricardo at Renault versus Hulkenberg. This is pretty much 50-50, 51% in Ricardo's favour. And I suppose what that reflects is that I mean, Hulkenberg has not had much trouble in recent years dispatching all of his teammates, whereas uh, Ricardo's had a slightly more difficult time. He's been more and more neck and neck with all of them until last year, where partly because of retirements and partly just because he was outperformed, um, he was he was beaten quite roundly by Max Verstappen. Yep, indeed. And, you know, something I pointed out a year ago is the Red Bull program, in terms of its drivers, is, is relatively insular, mm-hmm. making it hard to make predictions as to how they rank relative to other drivers outside of that program. The Sainz-Hulkenberg pair up last year helped that a little bit, and I'm really, really excited to see Ricardo Hulkenberg. I think that's going to answer a lot of questions for everyone. You know, Hulkenberg's sort of been in this position for a long time of just being in the shadow of the top drivers. You know, he hasn't quite made that break. He didn't, you know, quite get the promotions that people expected him to to top teams. Um, and now he's going to be right there. And of, of course, with potentially more favorable regulations these days with respect to driver weight as well. Mm, that is a good point, actually, and how that's going to affect some of the taller drivers will be interesting. And Hulkenberg, of course, is amongst them. Uh, it's, that will actually be interesting to see how that one plays out. Uh, and one final one I, I, I want to look into, and this is probably a, a bit of a difficult one to predict, no matter which way you cut it, whether just with past performance or mm-hmm. maybe a more qualitative approach, is Kubica versus Russell. Kubica returning after eight years. I knew, I knew you would go there. Oh, uh, look, yep. I'm a <laughs> I'm excited that Kubica's back. I'm excited. And also it's at Williams, which makes a, a more complicated situation, I suppose. But uh, Kubica, an 86% chance to beat George Russell, who's 14%. Russell, of course, comes in as the reigning Formula 2 champion. Uh, he also won in what would have been GP3 at the time, I think. Oh, yeah, of course it was. It was GP3 right up until now. Uh, Kubica, very highly rated when he was in Formula 1, but has been out for a very long time and, of course, comes to Formula 1 with an injury. This is an interesting battle, yeah, no matter which way you cut it. It should be a fascinating one. Uh, and I'll just note that 14% for Russell, because he, of course, has never been a Formula 1 mm-hmm. driver before. So you might ask, how is the model coming up with anything there? Um, so What I did is I, I found other historical drivers who had similarly strong junior careers and looked at their rookie-level performance. Um, so that's what that one is based on. With respect to Kubica, the model, of course, has no way of factoring in his injury and any effect Mm -hmm. that may have had. So it it is considering the fact that he's been out for a really long time. It's considering his current age, and he should be near his absolute sporting peak at his current age, um, putting aside the the experience recently and putting aside the the injury. Um, And we knew, you know, he was a very strong driver before, you know, if not one of the absolute Mm -hmm. elite, not too far off that. So the, the real question mark is, what's the extent of the injury? I mean, it, it can't be zero effect, <laughs> um, but what is it? You know, is it a tenth of a second? Is it half a second? I don't think we really know that. And, and to be honest, this year isn't going to definitively answer that for us either, um, because Russell is coming in as a bit of an unknown. And, and on top of that, unfortunately, you know, when you get to a team that's in kind of the state of affairs of Williams, it's very likely they're going to be sort of bringing in new parts on the fly the two cars possibly will be unequal, will have many reliability issues. So it's, it's going to be a difficult comparison to read in any case. Yeah, absolutely. And the effect it has on the both drivers' outlook in Formula 1 in terms of the longer-term 
career prospect. It all, there's so much playing into that battle. I think it's a really interesting one. And in truth, it may not actually end up being much of a battle. I mean, uh, George Russell talking on Thursday at the Australian Grand Prix said both drivers accepted that the more important thing was really just to improve the car rather than battle for what's likely to be 19th place on the grid and in the race, which I think is a probably the right way to go about it, the best way to go about it, because the faster they do that, the better they do that, the faster the car will recover but there's a lot of questions to be answered i mean that's true to an extent and it's it's easy for kubica to take that point of view the issue for russell is you know he needs to prove himself as a mercedes junior um you know being heavily beaten by kubica this year would would not look too good on his cv there are a lot of questions to uncover this season whether it's the competitive order or the state of the drivers i feel like we're a little bit more informed now though so andrew it's been a pleasure to talk to you and thanks so much for filling us in yeah thank you i'm excited for sunday that was dr andrew phillips from f1 metrics the strategy report is a beer mogul podcast powered by apex race manager the mobile race management simulator download the 2019 edition of apex race manager for free for ios and android devices and don't forget you can download every episode of the strategy report by subscribing on google podcasts apple podcasts spotify and your favorite podcasting app and you can leave a review to help other f1 fans find the show my name's Michael Laminato. You can find me at Michael Laminato on Twitter, and I'll catch you next week for an analysis of round one, the Australian Grand Prix.